You're listening to Rambling with Ryu, hosted by Bean, the co-founder of Ryu Paralysis Recovery Center living with a T10 spinal cord injury, and Nancy, a professional kinesiologist specializing in pediatric and adult neurorehabilitation. Welcome to our activity-based therapy series, where we talk to leading clinicians, researchers, and those with lived experience as we explore the realm of neurorecovery. On this podcast, we educate on the lesser-known topics and give practical tips and tricks to help elevate your practice. So today we have Brittany Nunzig back with us here. She is a certified nutrition and wellness consultant. And as I said on previous episodes, if you'd like to know her full story, you can check out episode seven of Rambling with Ryu, where we go into depth of Brittany's story. Last time we talked about eating for weight loss and nutrition for weight management. And so today we're going to talk about eating for a healthy bowel. And this is something that is really, really important for people with spinal cord injuries and something that we discuss a lot in our group chats and at Ryu. And so we're really happy to have you back, Brittany, and really happy that you're going to be able to share all this information with us. Glad to be back. Awesome. Yeah, it's glad to have you. So all right, let's just jump into it as well here. So let's talk about eating for a healthy bowel. All right. So uh, I wanted to talk first off, just to start this podcast about what actually happens to your bowel when you have a spinal cord injury, because why would we have to eat for a healthy bowel? And why would that be different uh, with a spinal cord injury? And I think it helps people just to know what they can influence and what they don't have control over. So I just wanted to talk about that a little bit. So when you're paralyzed, you have something called a neurogenic bowel, but what does that actually mean? And how is your bowel actually innervated? So our autonomic nervous system is responsible for our digestive tract. So most of it happens without our voluntary control. And most of it keeps working without any voluntary control after our spinal cord injury, which is a great thing. You know, mostly the only thing that people that are able-bodied have control over is the actual act of defecating when they do feel like they have a bowel movement ready in their rectum. So that's the voluntary control of your of your digestive tract. The rest of it keeps working with spinal cord injury, mostly. So the vagus nerve, and we'll talk about this in the gut-brain axis, innervates from the esophagus, which is like your, where you swallow, to the mid-transverse colon. So your colon is your large intestine. It's where the food goes after it gets digested in the small intestine. And the mid-transverse colon is the part that goes horizontally across your stomach before it starts to go down, turn downward and then make its way down to your rectum where you will eventually have, you know, a bowel movement. So most of your intestinal tract is innervated by your vagus nerve, which has nothing to do with your spinal cord at all, which is great news. And then the last part that's innervated from the mid-transverse colon to the rectum is innervated by the pelvic nerve, and that is affected by your spinal cord. So the pelvic nerve is in the T-spine, the lower part of the T-spine. So if you're paralyzed higher than, you know, T10 or whatever, you're going to have your pelvic nerve, which innervates the rest of your colon, paralyzed. So the thing we no longer have control over is that last set of reflexes that stimulate an actual bowel movement. So all of the bowel management programs that we learn in rehab and that are, you know, sold to us from our doctors, they basically just try and influence the reflexes that we no longer have control over and time the reflexes that are still intact. So the reflexes in our stomach 
that caused by stretching that then tell our, our body we need to move food through the rest of the intestines. Those things still work just fine. And so we try and time our bowel routine with when we eat so that all of the reflexes are working together. And then we use things like suppositories to initiate the reflex that we no longer no longer have by irritating the lower bowel, which is the same thing that we do with uh, digital stimulation. It's just mechanical irritation that then kicks into gear the pelvic reflex, which then stimulates that mid-transverse colon and descending colon to actually start moving and move the stool out. So I just wanted to like tell people what actually happens when you're paralyzed. So that's what's actually paralyzed. And when those things are paralyzed, they just cause your intestines to work less effectively. And then because we're always sitting, just a whole bunch of different things, our bowel just works less effectively. So things that can happen when you're paralyzed can be dysphagia, which is difficulty swallowing. Those are more for like high level quadriplegics can be decreased gastric emptying, which is like how fast your stomach empties. And again, that's mostly for higher level quadriplegics. And just to kind of note, the reason that high-level quadriplegics have more issues with that is because as you get paralyzed higher in the C-spine, then you start to get some of the parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system affected. And there is a little bit of innervation of the intestines and the bowel that is controlled by your parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system that is different than just the autonomic nervous system. So yeah, I just wanted to say that. So sometimes people that have higher level injuries, they can have more troubles than paraplegics. The other things that can happen are prolonged mouth to cecum transit time, which is just like the transit time from when you eat to when you defecate. And a normal transit time is between 12 and 30 hours. And after a spinal cord injury, it can double. It doesn't always double, but sometimes it can double, which is not good for us. (laughs) And then decreased colonic motility, which is just how well the muscles in our intestine work, like how strong the contractions are. I I talked about this in the last podcast about digesting fats. We can sometimes have an an increased risk of gallbladder disease just because the gallbladder is partially innervated in the T-spine. And if you're paralyzed higher than that, then your gallbladder can be less effective. And then we have anal anal sphincter tone, which then we have to manage by opening our sphincter. So those are the things that affect how our bowel works. So what do we still have control over in our bowel? So the good news is that most of it's innervated by something that has nothing to do with our spinal cord injury, the vagus nerve. So we still have a lot of control over that. We still have control over stool consistency, which might seem counterintuitive, but stool consistency has a lot to do with what we eat, how much we drink. We still have control over the nutrition of the food we eat, which then feeds our microbiome. We still have large amounts of control over how well we digest food just by paying attention to what we digest well, how we actually eat, including chewing, and we have control over the timing. So all of the reflexes that our intestines have from when, you know, we're eating to our stomach stretching to all those things that initiate reflexes lower down in our intestines, we have control over that timing and we can use it to our advantage in order to have an effective bowel movement. So summary of that, just so people know how our bowel is affected, because I know for me, that helps. It might not help everybody, but knowing how my bowel is actually affected from my spinal cord injury helps me know what I can influence. Because for many years, I didn't think I could influence anything. I thought, you know, oh, my bowel just doesn't work as well anymore. When I realized that "Mm, actually it's mostly the things that I'm doing wrong, then it was empowering. So just wanted to describe that. 
Yeah, for sure. There's a lot of power in knowledge. We talk about this a lot at Ryu is like educating people of how their bodies actually work. Because once you have a better understanding of what you're doing and why you're doing it, you have, I guess, more accountability to yourself to really feed your body what it needs and not really what you want. Yeah, exactly. Like you said, there's power in knowledge. And it doesn't have to be like, a. some people get really scared about the power because then they go, oh, it's all up to me. Like they have a lot of responsibility in that. But for me, I would much rather know my own body and know what I have to do in order to influence it than just listen to a doctor because I've been there, done that. And doctors are awesome. Like I love my, I still go to the Glen Rose all the time. I still talk to my doctors all the time. Like, don't get me wrong. I don't not listen to doctors, but they're not going to know what it's like to live in my body. And they don't know what it's like to live with a spinal cord injury. They know what the science says. And the science does try to influence the bowel based on all of the reflexes and, you know, the innervation of the bowel and stuff like that. But they don't take into account enough how much nutrition can influence the bowel and just supporting your nutrition and your digestion goes a long way for that bowel health. And I think doctors just try and give you supportive pharmaceuticals too much. So yeah, power and responsibility can kind of be intimidating, but I think they're better to have than not to have because even when you have the, the knowledge, you can work with your doctor better. Yeah, I agree. And because all of us are so different and every spinal cord injury is so different, it's hard to make those generalized comments and that's kind of what we see from our medical professionals are those generalized comments because everything is so individualized and you know what you said about it take puts a lot of that responsibility on that person which is scary to take accountability for your own health yeah but really you have to I think a lot of people want somebody else to fix them. And I was one of those people too, where I was like, this is my doctor. You guys are my team. You guys fix me. But my health didn't become a priority until I made it a priority. And I started taking accountability for what I'm putting in my mouth and how that's affecting my body. Yes. And one of the biggest things that I hear a lot from friends, from other people that I talk to about this issue is that it's exhausting to have to think about so much with a spinal cord injury. And I will agree with that. But I want to tell people that once you get your health under control, then you get to a point where yes, you think about it every day. There's not a day that goes by that I don't have to think about the amount of water that I'm drinking, or how much vegetables I'm eating, all that stuff. And if I go two, three days without it, and then I start to feel like crap again, or I'm not pooping or whatever it is, then I realize, oh, I got to get back to it. So it is exhausting, can be exhausting. And that's like the biggest comment that I get is there's too much to think about. It's too exhausting. But you just take small steps and learn slowly. And eventually there comes a time where you would much rather do all of that background. I call it like RAM, like where your computer is kind of always like keeping things running. That's kind of where the health stuff gets to is where it's always in the background, but it's not like in the forefront of your mind anymore. You're not like, oh, this is so exhausting to think about. You just, you know, fill your plate with mostly vegetables and don't even think too much about it anymore and just move on with your day. I just keep filling my cup with tea every single time it's empty and I drink it. And then when it's empty, I drink it again. So it's not like I'm like going through my day, just exhausted thinking about all of these things that are keeping me healthy. It just gets to a point where it's easier to have all of that stuff running in the background than it is to deal with the sickness. 
and to not poop and to, you know, get bladder infections and all that stuff. So that's the biggest comment, but I would say that it's easier after you get over that hump and you realize there's another side. Yeah. And I think one of the important things you said is making small changes, right? That's what makes it sustainable. That's what makes it a lifestyle change is making those small changes, not drastically changing your whole lifestyle overnight and then expecting success in two weeks. Exactly. Like I, my daughter is almost nine and I started learning about nutrition and changing, you know, my bowel routine and all that stuff when she was a baby. So it's taken me close to nine years to learn all the stuff I know. And I didn't have to know everything in order to improve my health. And I didn't have to know everything in order to start seeing improvements in my health or my bowel routine or my bladder infections, all that stuff. So small changes can really add up. So just keep that in mind. Because some people when they're listening might be like, Oh my god, this is overwhelming. I don't know even know where to start. Just start somewhere. Yeah. Like Darren Hardy says, right? The compound effect. Exactly. Little changes add up to the big ones. Exactly. Okay, so how about we talk a little bit about that gut brain axis, just because we just talked about how the vagus nerve is actually mostly responsible for innervating your intestinal tract. And the vagus nerve has nothing to do with spinal cord injury. And it's also the nerve that connects your gut and your brain. So let's talk a little bit about that, because that's super important. So the gut and the brain are like a two-way street and they are intimately related to each other in terms of like what goes on in the brain affects the bowel and what goes on in the bowel affects the brain. So the gut is connected and communicates with our central nervous system, our endocrine system, and our immune system. So it's intimately related in all of the things that helps our body run efficiently and stay healthy. But if people just need a definition of the gut-brain axis, I'm going to actually read it because some people are like, what is that? So it is a bi-directional communication between the central and enteric nervous system, which is your intestinal tract, linking emotional and cognitive centers of the brain with peripheral intestinal functions. So read that again, emotional and cognitive centers of the brain with peripheral intestinal functions. So we're talking about gut health here and eating for a healthy bowel. And this has a lot more to do than just with pooping. So if you're like, uh, I'm good. I don't need to know this information. If you have depression or anxiety or any of those things that so many people with spinal cord injuries have, it's related to our gut health. And our gut health takes a beating because we're on so many antibiotics and things like that. So we have to pay even more attention to it. So if you're having mental health issues or anything like that, probably related to the state of your gut health, And eating for a healthy bowel is even more important. The other thing I wanted to mention is that the gut is a major producer of serotonin. So I'm not sure how many people know, but serotonin is like the feel good hormone that our brains like and that makes us feel good. So when we are on antidepressants and stuff like that, generally they're influencing the amount of serotonin that we have in our bodies. And our gut is a major producer of that. Our gut microbiome also has a huge effect on mood. There have been studies done with people that have gut dysbiosis, which is like higher bad bacteria and not enough good bacteria, and they have higher levels of mental health issues. And if you take somebody's bad bacteria, they've done animal studies on this. So they take a dysbiotic gut microbiome and they inject it or they transplant it into like a mouse or something that is a 
not nervous mouse, a happy mouse, then that mouse becomes nervous and unhappy. So our brain can affect our gut health. So our stress level, like if we have psychological stress, that can reduce the amount of good bacteria that we have in our gut. It can create high levels of cortisol, which reduce the amount we digest. And then vice versa, if we have bad bacteria in our gut, it can create all of those negative brain chemistry situations that create depression and stuff like that. So it's a two-way street and it's really important. And the vagus nerve is super cool because it's not affected by our spinal cord injury. So we have lots of control over this part of our gut health. Okay, so how about we talk about how to improve the digestion and how the gut-brain axis is important for improving digestion and how we can control our digestion with that gut-brain axis. So some of the things that we can do that we still have control over the spinal cord injury are how we eat, specifically like how long we're taking to eat, how much we're chewing, not eating when we're upset, not eating when we're angry. So that can start the digestion process well so that when it gets down into the lower parts of our intestine, we have already set it up for success. So simple things that we can do to stimulate our vagus nerve before we actually eat are humming, we can splash cold water on our face, those kinds of things help stimulate the vagus nerve and reduce stress while we're eating so that then our body is set up to digest more effectively. And so that's like the first thing that we can do in order to help out our digestion. So can I ask, how does the brain communicate with the intestines? Is it chemicals? Is it hormones? How does it communicate and how do we get that increase in serotonin when we eat? Okay, so our brain primarily talks to our intestines through chemicals. So there's a whole bunch of different chemicals. There's chemicals that send feedback for digestion in terms of like what enzymes to make based on the foods that we're eating that sends stuff up to our brain so that it can then send biofeedback to our pancreas to tell it what enzymes to release. It has different chemicals that tell it when we're full, all of those kinds of things. I'm not actually entirely sure how the serotonin thing works. So I don't have an answer for that. I just know that our gut is a large producer of the serotonin, but I'm not entirely sure how it talks to the brain in terms of like when it needs to produce more serotonin, how the the serotonin sort of feedback loop works and like why our intestines would produce more serotonin as opposed to less serotonin. So I'm not entirely, I'm not entirely sure on that, on that one. Mm -hmm. But so I guess to an extent that would explain why people comfort eat. Yes. Yes. Definitely. People do comfort eat. The funny thing is, is that when our serotonin levels are high enough, it is a hunger suppressant. So when we have a healthy gut and our gut is producing enough serotonin, we actually want to eat less. And usually when people comfort eat, it has more to do with the cortisol levels because cortisol is an appetite stimulant. So cortisol is like a stress hormone. Um, and when it's high, generally it's telling our bodies to break down carbohydrates for quick energy because it's telling our body that we need energy to handle the stress. And it's also telling our bodies to break down sugars and things like that. And so then we crave that stuff after our body's done breaking down all of those sugars for quick energy. And even though we might not be like running away from like a tiger or something, we might have just psychological stress, but it still does the same things in our body. Physiologically, it still tells it to start breaking down quick energy so that we can 
be at peak, you know, mental condition or whatever it is that we need to have kind of on the go for our, our, uh, our stress response. So the comfort eating has a lot to do with the, with the cortisol. Basically what you're saying is mindfulness is important when you're eating, knowing what you're eating and why you're eating it. Yeah, exactly. So just keeping in mind that how we eat matters so that we're eating in a non-stress state that allows our body to set ourselves up for good digestion because we can still have control over our digestion. Our spinal cord injury has not affected the gut brain axis in any way. And we still have a lot of control over that. So just making sure that we keep that in mind when we're eating so that our body has the best chance to start digesting the food that we're eating in an effective way. Yeah, I think that's great advice. Okay, let's talk about this microbiome. What is it? So the microbiome is specifically the bacteria that live in a symbiotic relationship inside of our bodies. So they help us digest our food and they also help us create nutrients for our intestinal walls. So they digest things that we can't digest, namely fiber. And when they digest the fiber, they make something really important called butyrate, which is the most important nutrient for the epithelial cells in our intestinal tract. So our microbiome this is an interesting fact. The The amount of poop that somebody has, like the volume of it and the weight of it is actually mostly dead bacteria. So if you are generally constipated a lot and you have lo- small stools in relation to how much food you're eating, chances are you don't have a very populated gut bacteria, which is not a good thing because they're, they're actually helping us digest our food. So yeah, the gut bacteria is just the, just the bacteria that live in our, live in our body that live in a symbiotic sort of way to help us digest the foods that we're eating. And they can have a huge effect on how well we digest food on, we already talked about this on our mood, all kinds of stuff. If we have bad bacteria then it can create sickness and disease and it can create nutrient deficiencies. So making sure that we have a healthy gut microbiome is super important. And especially with people with spinal cord injuries, our gut microbiome gets obliterated every single time we take an antibiotic. And so it's even more important for us to do things, eat foods that support our microbiome and take probiotics, eat probiotic foods, so that when those antibiotics affect our microbiome, we're able to build it back up. And there's interesting studies that say that probiotics don't actually change the sort of the layout of your microbiome. So they're not actually going to change which bacteria you have in your gut to a huge degree, because that's kind of there and it's developed as you grow and you know when you're a baby what's there to sort of seed the microbiome you're kind of stuck with whatever's there and we do have some influence over it with what we eat more than taking like probiotics but what the probiotics do is when you have something that that reduces the amount of bacteria in your gut like an antibiotic it actually kind of like primes it for the bacteria that are already there to multiply faster. So it it repopulates the gut faster than if you didn't take probiotics or you weren't eating probiotic rich food. So that was interesting. I just actually uh, watched a thing on that a little while ago about the benefits of probiotics for repopulating your gut bacteria in times when it's been depleted. 
Interesting. So would taking antibiotics and taking a lot of antibiotics, because a lot of people do when you have recurrent UTIs and stuff, Yeah. would that make you more constipated or like, how does that? It depends actually. So having a, or not, and not a healthy microbiome, it can either cause constipation or it can cause diarrhea. So if you're not having normal stools and a normal stool is considered something that is smooth, but formed, or formed with like cracks in the surface, that's considered like a normal stool. If you're not having mostly those, then in general, there's probably something wrong with your gut microbiome or your digestion in general. Sometimes diarrhea can be caused by inflammation in your intestine and it's not because you have a bad microbiome. But just in general, I would say that if you don't have normal stools, there's probably something wrong with your microbiome. If you have lots of bloating, all that stuff, there's probably something with your microbiome. I know I had a comprehensive stool analysis done because I was having a lot of stomach pain and bloating and I had no growth of the bifidium bacteria, which is supposed to be in like the normal population, the highest concentration of any bacteria in your gut. And I didn't, mine didn't even grow. So that was scary. And it was like, I think three weeks after I had been on antibiotics. So antibiotics are are such a huge, huge problem for people with spinal cord injuries because you kind of almost can't get ahead of it once you, if you're taking them all the time, which is why one of the things that I always recommend for eating for a healthy bowel is to try your hardest to not take antibiotics, which sounds really scary for people that have chronic UTIs, which I had for like, you know, 12 years, 12 UTIs a year was always on antibiotics. And until I stopped taking antibiotics and using more natural sources that don't necessarily obliterate all of the bacteria, but that are more selective for the bad bacteria in my gut. And that also kill, you know, the UTI bugs and stuff like that. Then I, I didn't start to see as many improvements with my gut health and my bowel routine. Cool. So we're going to go into a lot more depth about how to have a healthy bladder and yeah. how to you know, heal your UTIs naturally in the next episode. But I do want to go back and say, like, uh, I was going to ask how people can get their stool tested. And you said you had a comprehensive, comprehensive stool analysis. So it's a costly test. And you can only generally get it at a like a naturopath. But I highly recommend it. The one that I had was roughly $400. But it identified a dysbiosis which meant that I had like a small parasite, which wasn't a big deal. And then I had just a, bac a bacteria that was a more a bad bacteria. We do have bad bacteria. So it's not like if you have these bad bacteria in your gut that it, there's something wrong with you because we always have a balance. So we should have a balance of gut bacteria that isn't helpful. That's more just like, you know, it's eating our food. It's kind of hitching a ride, but it's not beneficial at all. And sometimes if it gets too in too high of a concentration, it can cause diarrhea and it can cause, you know, pain and all that kind of stuff, inflammation. So we want to have a balance of the good and the bad. And we want to have more of the good and less of the bad. And so when I had my comprehensive stool analysis, it, it identified a dysbiotic bacteria that I then had to take natural herbal medicine to try and eliminate or like reduce at least. And it worked. Like I felt so much better after. And so now I'm really leery every time I take antibiotics because once you take antibiotics and you obliterate the good bacteria, then those bad bacteria kind of have an advantage and they can then build up again. So 
yeah, it's a costly test, but I would recommend it if if somebody can afford it, especially if they're having digestive issues. Yeah, I would say so too. And, you know, at the cost of these things, yes, it is expensive. But if you look at it as an, an investment in yourself and an investment yeah. in your health, which is an investment in your future, right? So if you look at it that way, then it's like, well, what's $400 for my health, right? And in the long term, really, like we spend $400 on a lot worse things. Yeah, straight up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So find a good naturopath. There's lots of good ones, especially in Edmonton that deal with specifically intestinal health and digestive health. So usually it'll say on their website what their specialty is and if they can interpret these tests properly. Yeah. And just to throw it out there that naturopaths actually cannot specialize. So they all have the same kind of yeah background knowledge. I know because I've talked to a bunch of naturopaths and I have a few on my team that are my personal health team. Yeah. But, you know, they end up, you know, doing research in certain specific areas. And so that's why they quote unquote specialize, but technically they're not allowed to be specialists as in regular doctors being a cardiologist or a oh like they don't receive specialized education in any of these areas it's yeah. just their own what they decide to research yeah and like the continuing yeah. education and stuff yeah okay so let's talk about something huge in the spinal cord injury world where bowels are concerned laxative suppositories and stool softeners yeah okay so laxatives there's a whole bunch of different types of laxatives out there and they all do different things. So there's osmotic laxatives, which put fluid in the bowel, and that helps improve stool consistency by making it more moist and less likely to, to get constipated. There's stimulant laxatives, which they actually stimulate the intestine to move the stool through your bowel. And then there's different types of laxatives. They work in different ways, but they all want to keep you pooping. That's basically what they do. And most of them, especially in the stimulant laxative arena, they can create like a lazy bowel eventually. So I try and stay away from laxatives, at least stimulant laxatives and pharmaceutical grade laxatives. And I try instead to find a natural, healthier source. I first actually look at nutrition. So how about we talk about fiber in this in this area, just because fiber is sort of a natural laxative. Um, and fiber creates bulk in your bowel. And it also depending on the type holds water in your bowel. So insoluble fiber is the type of fiber that is like roughage. So if you think putting a piece of lettuce in water, it's not going to absorb any water, it just stays there. It just stays a piece of lettuce. And the more lettuce you put in the water, the bulkier the, the lettuce gets and the more the water fills up with lettuce. And so that's insoluble fiber. And so the more insoluble fiber you eat, like lettuce, broccoli, things like that, that have like green roughage, the more your bowel will fill up with the undigestible green parts of the food and the more bulk your stool will have. Those types of fibers, they increase how fast the food moves through your intestinal tract. So if you eat too many of them, you can get diarrhea. The soluble fiber are things like oatmeal or flax seeds. There's lots of soluble fiber in beans. So if you were to like put flax seeds in water, it would absorb the water. Oatmeal, when you cook it, absorbs water. So those types of fibers are going to 
absorb water in your bowel. They are going to hold water in your bowel and they are going to slow down how fast stool moves through your digestive tract. So they're both valuable and they both have a place. And this is important because it allows people to influence their stool consistency. So if you tend to be on the constipated side, you can use insoluble fiber as a natural laxative to increase the speed at which food moves through your intestinal tract just by eating more insoluble fiber. If you tend on the diarrhea side, you can eat more soluble fiber to slow down your digestion and to absorb some of the excess water that's causing diarrhea in your digestive tract. So for me, before I start taking laxatives, I look at the types of fiber that I'm eating because they both act as a natural laxative depending on how much you're eating. And just like some laxatives, like bulk forming laxatives, like Metamucil, those kinds of things, you have to be able to balance how much liquid you're drinking with that laxative. And you can just do the same thing with your food. So once you start knowing what types of fiber is in food, then you can kind of tweak based on what you need. You can sort of make your own laxative remedy. You can either eat more insoluble fiber if you need to be less constipated, and you can eat more soluble fiber if you need to be less on the loose side. So that's my first thing for laxatives is trying to know how food can play a role as a laxative. Mm -hmm. And then if that's not working, then I look at natural laxatives like Senna. It's a natural herbal laxative. It does potentially cause a lazy bowel if you use it too much, but it's natural. So if I am not able to manage my bowel routine with food, then I will turn to a Senecot or a natural Senna tea. And then if that's not working, I can eat something like prunes, which has a natural laxative effect. And then if those things aren't working, then I will add a prokinetic agent, which is sort of like a laxative, except that it helps the gastrointestinal motility by increasing the strength and frequency of contractions in your intestines. And natural prokinetic agents are ginger, magnesium, and then another big one is trifla or trifla. It's an Indian blend of herbs, an Ayurvedic Indian blend of herbs that is well known to promote bowel health and bowel motility. So those are kind of like my go-to things. So that's laxatives. And then suppositories. Suppositories are actually things that stimulate that pelvic nerve, that reflex that's paralyzed. So when you put it in your rectum, it will irritate it and it will just start the reflex that is normally paralyzed to move stool down your your colon. And so it acts differently in a laxative. And then what was the third thing you said? You said laxatives, suppositories, and what else? Oh, stool softeners. Stool softeners. So stool softeners, again, they're just all about stool consistency and trying to help stool stay less constipated because it is staying in our bowel longer. I talked about at the beginning of the, the podcast how our bowel motility slows down and the longer something stays in our colon, the more water it absorbs. So stool softeners just prevent as much water from being absorbed so that the stool consistency can stay softer and the stool can move through your bowel um, more effectively. But again, in that regard, I try my hardest to use food and natural supplementation as a stool softener. 
just as an example, magnesium is a natural sort of osmotic laxative. So it naturally comes out in our bowel if we take too much of the supplement. It's a water-soluble vitamin. And when we take too much of it, it comes out in our pee and our poop. And so that draws water into the bowel. So I try and take things like magnesium instead of, you know, the Ducaset sodium or whatever, um, just because it's a vitamin that we already need. It's water soluble. You can't really overdose on it. And if it's helpful for our bowel, then I think it's an, an easier one to take and you're not adding something that your body doesn't need. Yeah. And I'm going to interject here and say that if you are taking supplements, it's highly recommended that you have a medical professional go through it with you and make sure you're on the correct dosage. Yeah, exactly. I still take a lot of magnesium. I take two different types and I increased my magnesium citrate dose on my own and thought that I'd be okay, thought that my muscles would be more relaxed. But what ended up happening was a few big, huge explosions. And yeah, I had quite a big mess to deal with. So yeah, and especially with magnesium citrate, it can cause if you take too much of it too often, it can cause electrolyte imbalances just because it's drawing so much water into your bowel. So definitely with magnesium citrate, definitely talk to your doctor about that one about like what's a safe amount to take because you don't want it to giving be giving you diarrhea all the time. And it's one that it's kind of unpredictable, that one. Yeah. And like if your family doctor or your medical doctor doesn't really know or they aren't willing to help you with this stuff, I highly recommend talking to a naturopath. It does cost money, unfortunately, but they do are very well versed and know a lot about these kinds of supplements and they can help you find the right ones for you and for your body. Yes, 100%. There's so many natural, especially too, for any doctor that is familiar with SIBO, which is a small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. One of the problems in that condition is that it's slow bowel motility. So any naturopath that is really well versed in that condition will probably be able to help improve like a neurogenic bowel condition just because they're already dealing with, you know, slow bowel motility. And a lot of the natural herbs and things like that, that are helpful for SIBO will actually be helpful for neurogenic bowel. So if you are looking on, you know, a naturopath's website and they say that they are experienced with SIBO, then probably they're a good one to go to that would be able to at least translate the knowledge from that condition to neurogenic bowel. Because a lot of the research that I've done is based in SIBO, herbal treatments for SIBO and stuff like that, that just happen to also work for slow bowel motility with spinal cord injury. Yeah, cool. So, you know, what I'm hearing the common commonality between a lot of these nutrition episodes is know how your body works, pay attention to your body and get to really communicate with your body and like, see what it needs in order to function properly. Right? Yeah, exactly. And there's one thing I wanted to say about that is that like, there's so much information out there about fiber. And just in this area, I want people with spinal cord injuries to really understand that there is no fiber number for you, especially with a spinal cord injury. There is estimates out there in some of the research that I've done that says that people with upper motor neuron bowel, they need 15 grams of fiber because if they have too much fiber, then they can tend to get constipated. And it's, it's hard to get constipated stool out when you have a spinal cord injury. But people with a lower motor neuron bowel, because their sphincter isn't always tight, and they can 
sometimes get accidents if there's if their stool is too soft, then they recommend those people eating higher amounts of fiber so that the stool is harder and then less less likely to give them um, accidents. But every single person, able-bodied or not, and especially with a spinal cord injury, has to figure out the fiber number that works for them. For me, for years and years and years, I spent eating so much fiber and then my bowel kind of got addicted to it. And if I didn't eat the fiber, then my bowel, it didn't stretch enough in order to stimulate the nerves to move everything through my intestines. And so I had to really retrain it to go back to eating less fiber and still having a healthy bowel routine. So do eat fiber because it's really important, like I already mentioned, for the gut bacteria because they eat the fiber to create butyrate, which is a an important nutrient for our intestine. So don't eat low fiber, like don't start eating like five grams of fiber or 10 grams of fiber, but don't, you know, just automatically think that you need to eat like 35 grams of fiber in order to have a healthy bowel routine. That might not be the case. And yeah, like you just mentioned, everybody is different and you have to figure out what works for you. Because I know some people that are eating so much fiber and they're like, I'm so constipated. And I'm like, you need to eat less fiber, but they won't. Because they've got it, this idea that that fiber is super important for them. So then they're trying all these other ways in order to stop them from being constipated. And really, it's because they're eating too much fiber. Yeah, a lot of this stuff is super individualized. And like we've said numerous times in this episode and many others, that all of us are so different. And so it's really hard to know, really hard to give advice generally. And so if you do want individual advice and you do want to have some questions regarding your body and how much fiber you should be eating, definitely reach out to Brittany and she is coaching people now. And so she can work with you and create a program for you. Right, Brittany? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I can work with you to help you figure out the fiber amounts that work for you. If you have got issues in terms of like bloating and stuff like that, we can work through, you know, low FODMAP diets, different things like that to help decide what things digest better for you and just to get you on a on a on a better overall schedule. Yeah, awesome. Is there anything else that you would like to add to this episode? Um, just realizing that mostly our bowel is innervated from something that has nothing to do with our spinal cord injury. So most of it is within our control. And I think sometimes we can kid ourselves a lot that, oh, we don't have any more control over that. And that's that just gives us sort of a an easy way to, to, to take things that are unhealthy for us or sort of give up when we really have a lot of control. Yeah, I love that. Thank you so much, Brittany. You are, as always, a very large wealth of knowledge. And uh, we're so grateful to have you sharing your knowledge with us and our listeners. I will put all of your contact information in our show notes. So if anybody has any questions for Brittany, you can definitely reach out to her individually and she will get back to you. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me again, guys. You're very welcome. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. As always, we would greatly appreciate if you could subscribe, leave us a five-star review, and a comment on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as this helps us increase our reach. And stay tuned for another episode coming at you in two weeks.